Hey, I'm Kim Short, and it's time to get your podcast on. Welcome to What Led Her Here, exploring the defining experiences of women's lives. My guest today is the determined and resilient Tara Garrity Ellis. Tara is a clinical social worker, disability consultant and counselor, and author of Visible and Empowered. In her work, Tara provides professional support to people affected by disability in a way that is customized to meet their diverse needs, while also helping businesses ensure their workplaces are inclusive of people with disabilities. Tara's passion comes from her own lived experiences with multiple visible and non-visible disabilities. I'm so happy to have her here today to share her powerful story. Welcome, Tara. Thank you, Kim. I'm so happy to be here and I really appreciate the invitation and I'm just grateful to talk to you. I'm so happy that we get this chance to chat. So a good place to start is at the beginning. Please tell us about the circumstances around your birth and how that has shaped who you are today. The circumstances around my birth actually preceded my birth. My poor mom had several miscarriages before I came along. I would have been the youngest of seven. And it turns out I'm an only child. So my mom went through a lot before I was born. And the doctors, they wanted to do a lot of the internal investigations, you know, the prenatal stuff. And my mom said, don't touch me, because she thought that all of the miscarriages she had had was because the doctors were in there. And right or wrong, she just had this instinct that... If she was left alone, I would develop and she would carry me to term and things would be okay. And then I was born and they found out on day one that I had spina bifida, which is a curvature of the spine. And I also had hydrocephalus, which is water buildup in the brain. And they basically said, we have to rush her to the hospital for sick children right away. She has to have surgery. And they whisked me away. And my mom got to see me for a minute. (laughs) And it was very traumatic for her. And they gave me 10% chance to live. And then things got a little bit better. And my chance to live went up to possibly 20. And I was sent home after about four months. I gained enough weight to be sent home, but the prognosis still wasn't good. But I managed to beat all the odds. And that's basically what has formed my life. It's not about my life is wonderful. My life's fabulous. My life is wonderful. My life is fabulous. But my life is not picture perfect because no one's life is picture perfect. That image is all photoshopped in magazines. My life is not 100% rosy all of the time. I have struggles, but I'm here and I've managed to succeed in my own way and I plan to succeed the rest of the way, whatever that means. 
I think that is so beautifully said. And I love the perspective that you have. You obviously have this gratitude for the life that you have. So tell me about your childhood. Your entrance into the world was not an easy one. Your mom was told that you would likely not survive. And if you did that, you... I would be a vegetable. Um, I wasn't going to walk. I wasn't going to talk. I wasn't going to be able to think. And they should put me in a home. And in the 1970s, there were a lot of homes for sick children. My mom and dad were advised, just put her in one of those. She'll be fine. You can go on with your lives. And my mom and dad said, no, we're bringing her home. And my mom made everybody who stepped through their doors and wanted to see me. The rule was, okay, if you want to see her, you have to work her legs, work her arms. It's not just cuddle time. Make sure you talk to her uh, just to keep developing me. And my mom's main concern was that my mind was active. She wanted, at the very least, to have my mind active. And she prayed that she would be able to talk to me. She sounds like a real champion for you. Oh, yeah, she was and is. When we talked the last time, you told me about as you got older and entered school, you experienced bullying and harassment Hmm. by not only kids, but teachers as well. Yeah. Which just really infuriates me. And I, I can only imagine what it brings up for you. So can you just share a bit about that experience? When I was in school, I was the only kid with a disability in my elementary schools. And I was in two different elementary schools, one in kindergarten through grade five and a different one in grade five through eight. And they just didn't know what to do with me. It was very uh, tippy-toey with me. And the principal was very good at trying. You know, he he said, okay, we'll try. We'll let her in. We'll try. But beyond that, there was kind of no firm plan. And so the teachers didn't really know how to handle me and accommodations were sparse. This was before the Ontarians with Disabilities Act or the ADA or IDEA or any of those that lay out how you're supposed to accommodate a kid with learning disabilities. So those didn't exist when I grew up. And teachers did not have a clue what to do and how to support a child with a disability. So with the result, when I was in grade five, I had a very unfortunate experience with a teacher who wanted to fail me. But the practice was you didn't fail a child. And that very year, my granddad died. And my mom and I wanted to go to his funeral in Ireland. So my teacher said, well, go, you're going to fail anyways, so go. There's no point in you staying here. You're no good here, so do what you want. 
those were the exact words that I remember. You're no good here. So do whatever you want to a 10 year old. So I got out of that school and I went to my new school, which was just down the road from where I lived. And grade six was great. Grade seven and eight sucked. Really, really miserable because the boys decided that they were going to pick on me and they were going to harass me. This was when the bullying started. So I endured two years bullying and it got really bad with one. One little boy just decided that he was going to get very physical with me and like he pulled down his pants and rubbed up against me. So to my kid mind, that was big. That was big time. Yeah. That was hugely traumatizing. So I could not wait to get out of elementary school. High school was much better because I went to an all-girls school. I didn't have to deal with the boys. And that was the first time, really, that I gained a group of friends. I didn't know how to make friends in my childhood. They don't teach you how to make friends. They assume you know how to make friends. And most kids do know how to make friends. But if you've got neurodiversities or if you've got disabilities of any kind, making friends is difficult. Making friends does not come naturally. It's a skill you have to actually be taught. And if you don't have anybody to teach you, and who knows the skills themselves. And unfortunately, my mom didn't really have those skills because she was the bully child and she was the middle child of seven. So she was not really paid attention to as a kid. So her childhood kind of bled into my childhood. And it was, yeah, it was a little, a little unfortunate. Totally not her fault. I just didn't get taught how to make friends until high school. And then I got a close group of friends. So that aspect of it worked really well. Academically, not so much because I was really, really, really good at English. I was really, really, really good at French. Math, not so much. (laughs) And they still had this special education program where they take you out of a class and put you in a separate class, but they didn't have that all the way up through high school. They had the equivalent of grade nine and 10. So I ended up taking that twice because they had to keep me in special education all the way through. And because I was in special education, I was told when I was applying to university that I shouldn't be going to university because I was in special education. And you were told that by your guidance by, counselor, right? By the, by the guidance counselor and by one of the teachers and by the co-op teacher. There was a big meeting where I was instructed that I shouldn't be applying to university. I did anyways, because <laughs> at this point I kind of got my senses together and got a little gumption behind me. So I applied to York, Brock, and U of T, Mississauga, because that's where all my friends were going. And when they received their supplementary applications and I didn't, 
I got really curious. So I went to the guidance department and the head of the guidance department said to me, oh, I thought you had decided you weren't going to university because I saw your your applications being shredded. I went, what? And I walked out. What I should have done <laughs> is said more, said, you'll be hearing from my lawyer. <laughs> That's what the adult Tara would be saying, but the teenage Tara didn't have those words yet. But the teenage Tara just reapplied and got into York and did her thing. Good for you. It's interesting. And I like how you point out how we process things differently with our adult minds and how when we can reflect back on some of our childhood stuff, the trauma, you know, all the stuff that happens and, you know, how we dealt with it at the time and how we would deal with it now if we could do it all over again. Yeah. It's hard and it's painful, right? When you reflect on those experiences, how do you look back on those and sort of come to terms with those people, the adults, the children who were a big part of the trauma that you experienced? What I try to do is put the past in the past and know that what happened is no longer happening. So actually physically, viscerally internalize that I am no longer living that part of my life. That happened, but I'm here now. So mentally, spiritually, just wish them luck and say bye-bye. And it's with a heaping helping of grace to myself. Mm. Because anything that happened to me in the past, I did the best I could with the information and the knowledge and the skills that I had back then. And that's all I could hope for. And those experiences that we have as kids and even into adulthood, they shape who we are. Without them, we wouldn't be where we are. And I think you are in a really wonderful, special place where you have taken all that stuff and you have become an advocate, not just for yourself, but for other people with disabilities as well. And I think using all of that to help and to serve is really beautiful. Therein lies the difference and the choice. And I want to emphasize the word choice because I think at the end of trauma, there is choice. We have to go through the stages of trauma. We have to endure that journey. We have to process those feelings. That's natural. But we have a choice to stay in the trauma or to transition out of the trauma and make it into something useful and helpful to ourselves and or other people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I don't know that everyone realizes that it is a choice because that cycle can be very strong 
and hard to break. But having that awareness that it is a choice is the very first step. So can you tell me a little bit about what your healing looked like from that trauma that you experienced and how you came to the place you're at today? I am fortunately, and I've come to appreciate this about myself. I used to hate it about myself, but I've come to really appreciate the fact that I'm very emotive. I'm a crier. Me too. (laughs) And I feel my feels. Like I feel the emotions very viscerally and they come out through my eyes and through my tears. And I just ball and ball and ball and ball and ball. And sometimes they come out through anger. And at one point I was very afraid of that. At one time I was very uncomfortable with that. So I had moved from afraid to uncomfortable. And now I'm really accepting of that. So it's just acknowledging and accepting how you process things. And I just became more and more self-aware of how I was processing these different emotions. And honestly, moving out of my parents' house was the best thing that happened to me because I was able to do what I needed to do for myself however I needed to do it because my dad was very angry all the time. Like my dad was always in pain, physical pain, and he was always depressed and he was always struggling with some psychological stuff and some emotional stuff, but he was always mad. And my mom grew very scared of any expression other than sadness. So she could handle if I was crying, but if I expressed it other than crying, she was like, oh, don't do that. No, 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 no. Go upstairs. Do that upstairs. Anywhere but in my sight. So it, it was sort of a shameful thing. And that's the worst thing. You don't want to have shame put on processing honest emotions. Yes. Having that freedom to express the array of human emotions is so natural, but I do see how some people are very uncomfortable with that. And that's a shame because then I I feel like, you know, if you can't welcome all of them, then you're really limiting yourself and, and, you know, limiting joy as well as pain and sadness. Like, you know, if you're not able to fully express, then even the joy can't fully be there. And my experience with people has been you are depriving yourself of actually having the experience of joy, wonder, happiness, real fulfillment. If you are stuck at, I can't yell, I can't scream, I can't be angry, I can't cry. Because if you can't, then that means you can't move past. Yeah. And if you can't move past, you can't fulfill that part of the journey. Once you can fulfill that part of the journey, once you can 
go all the way, then you have the choice. Again, you can reach that point of choice. Okay, now what do I do with this? And you can choose joy. Choose joy. Oh, I'm getting chills <laughs> just hearing you say that. The power of choice is incredible. And I love that you were able to access that. But if you are living with people who are afraid of their own emotions, they're going to be afraid of yours. Yeah, there was a quote the other day that someone posted, and I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, people can only understand you. They can only understand you to the extent that they understand themselves. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is, I love that. And it's so true. And it's sad also in a way for people who don't give themselves the chance to get into that messy place, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's true because so few of us are willing to go there and willing to explore the yuck and get to the good stuff. Yeah. So tell me now that you have explored the yuck, (laughs) tell me about the good place you're in right now. It is amazing. I am creating a group of people that come together with a unified mission that is called Empowered to Thrive. And who we really want is people who have disabling conditions or parents who are parenting kids who have disabling conditions or people who support us, who all want better, who see the potential for better. I believe there's strength in numbers. And the goal is to change 10,000 lives. Wow. Yes. I have to go back really quick because there is a story that you told me the first time we talked that I really want you to tell again. (laughs) And that is about this guidance counselor. (laughs) And I know you have one, one of your favorite quotes is success is the best revenge. (laughs) And I would love for you to tell us about this guidance counselor from high school. Yeah. So this goes back to that meeting that I had where I was told that I shouldn't apply to university. Years later, I saw the guidance counselor who shredded all my applications. And my mom kind of nudged me and said, isn't that her? I said, oh yeah, it looks like her. Go up and say hi. So I did. And I introduced myself and I said, how are you doing? I said, I'm great. I'm actually just back home from my studies and I'm going on to do a master's degree. And in the meantime, I just got a job in the uh, Board of Education. So looks like I'm going to be your boss. (laughs) And what was the look on that person's face (laughs) when you said that? Oh, oh, good. Good for you. Her mouth dropped and I walked away. I really hope that that was a wake-up call for her not to underestimate people. You know what it is? It's not even judging anybody based on a disability. It it gets more basic than that. People just 
people based on a diagnosis, based on a piece of paper with words on it. They're not actually looking at a child. They're not actually looking at who this child is, who this child could be, what this child could be capable of, what this child's goals, dreams, likes, dislikes, character, all of these things that go into a human being, I think that's really faulty. Yeah. You're more than a diagnosis. Yeah. And clearly, especially in your case, you have defied the odds and become an extremely successful woman and advocate. Mm. So tell me, what is the life lesson that you'd like to share to inspire other women? Look into the eyes of every person and see their heart. See who they really are, regardless of what you see on the outside. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice for everyone. So tell me, what is next for you? What excites you about the future? I'm going to make radical changes in how disability is seen, viewed, and how services for people with disabilities globally are operated and um, administered. And we're going to eventually get to a place where people are receiving humane, real, effective services that bring everybody to a place of living their absolute best lives because that's what everybody needs. There's no throwaway human being. Yeah. Let's just embrace humans for who they are and what they are and what they bring to the table. Let's just let's just be good to each other because I think in this day and age, that's what we need to be doing. Well said. So tell me, are you ready for the final five? Yes. So these are the same five questions I ask of every guest. And the first one is, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? The ability to read minds. I had one other guest say that. That's an interesting answer. <laughs> Do you think it would yeah. get a little uh, a little overwhelming at times, though? <laughs> Probably. But I'm always wondering what people are thinking that they're not telling me. When you were a kid, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? A teacher, which is probably why I'm a coach now. If it were your last day on earth, what would your final meal be? Probably a steak dinner with my mom and my husband. All the fixins, potatoes, the- salad, what, what, what would you have with it? <laughs> salad potatoes, asparagus, and dessert. And what for dessert? Probably an apple pie with ice cream. Ooh, that sounds yummy. Mm. (laughs) Who is a woman in history or present day you admire? Mother Teresa, because she actually did things. She got down into the people and she was hands-on. 
and she made real impact. What is your favorite quote? If you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. I love that quote. It speaks to the whole mindset thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story and your beautiful life lessons. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor.